Greetings, dear listeners. This is Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I am the host of the show. This episode of Feel Free to Deviate features academic librarian and comics artist Dawn Wing. She's moved around and changed careers a few times, and she recently published two comics about Chinese-American women under the banner of her publishing company, Waterpig Press. She skillfully balances her job and her artistic practice. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to keep the introduction uncharacteristically short. Please strap in and get ready for my conversation with Don Wing. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell me what you're doing these days? Or or better yet, how you identify as a worker. Like when, when people say, oh, what do you do? You say... I am an academic librarian and comics artist. That's fairly concise. <laughs> oh, but and also, but you have to tell me your name. Oh, okay. Are we? I guess are we quote unquote recording? Or are you... oh, we are recording. Oh, okay, okay. So my name is Dawn Wing, and I uh, am a librarian and an artist. I guess I'll start with that. My background is quite diverse. So at Wellesley College, where I earned my bachelor's degree, I studied art history and studio art, thinking that I would work in the museum world, maybe museum education or art education. And I've always tried to find ways to weave uh, creativity into all that I do, including in the work that I get paid to do, you know, in terms of just how I make a living. Same thing with travel. Like if, you know, I had an ability to kind of like go places I I appreciate that as well. My last year of college, I was still very much wanting to go out and explore the world. And I knew people who did uh, something called the Japan and Exchange Teaching Program, or JET for short. Okay. And, and this one career counselor, advisor at Wellesley, and, and I shout out to the Center for Work and Service. They are an <laughs> awesome resource. Uh, yeah, whether at Wellesley or elsewhere, if you're a college student or whatever those people are have been such wonderful resources and um and i'll kind of go back to that as an alumna of wellesley but anyway amy catman she had a position as like a career advisor and she did that program so i got to just ask her all these questions she was one of the first people in the cohort when they started this it's a government program it's like this kind of diplomatic like u.s uh, not just the u.s but the uk and australian and um, other english-speaking countries made this uh, agreement with the ministry of education in japan to fund and to support and sponsor this intercultural global exchange program in the form of having english-speaking teachers work in Japanese public schools to teach English because English is a compulsory course for middle school. Oh. It's from K through 12. Yeah. I knew other alumna, you know, other alumna older than me who did it. And I was like, you know what, why not? Let me give this a try. I am of Chinese descent. And so, um, and I had up until that point, maybe visited Asia specifically like Hong Kong and China, like twice. So I was like, Oh, I want to go back to East Asia, that part of the world in Japan is very fascinating in terms of art and, you know, art history and culture and all that stuff. I got in, I applied, I got in, and I taught English there for a year in a city called Nagoya. And I didn't speak any, I wasn't fluent in Japanese. It's not a requirement uh, to apply, although obviously it helps a lot. But I did learn while I was there. I took like a 
crash course with a private tutor. And so I was able to kind of squeak by. It was just, it really changed my life. And I, I recommend anyone, it's like, if you have a chance, no matter how old you are, although I kind of am like, hey, as a young person, like in my 20s, sometimes I'm just like, I did that. I can't believe I just like hopped on a plane to Vietnam and I like had no plans. <laughs> you could do it, you know, but it's sure, just some, yeah. something about being like young and just like, you know, more open. I had the energy to kind of just like think on my feet and all that stuff. But, you know, I noticed as like, okay, I wasn't really taking care of myself. Like I was like, I really should be eating or like feeding myself. <laughs> That's essential. Yeah. Then I realized I was like, oh, I think there's something going on, but it was hard. And I was only there for a year um, mostly just cause I was like, okay, I'm doing this gig. I'm teaching at four different high schools and it's kind of, the job itself is kind of redundant, you know? And, um, I was just like, all right, what's next? So I just, I decided to just come back to the States. I wasn't sure what would await me, but I was 22, 23 and, um, got, I did do, um, museum education work briefly at the Tenement Museum. You're right. Um, I remember that was, that's yeah. like the, one of the things that I remember, was that around the time that I moved here? Because we were more in contact around that time, or maybe a couple of years later, because you sent me a felt book that you made when, yes. when Ruby was born. Yeah, that was 2011 when I decided, when I went, to, was at Madison. Oh, right. okay. uh, I was thinking that that was like 10 years ago. I was like, oh right. man, that was 10 years ago when I uh, decided to make that transition. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I know I'm going all over the place. <laughs> you are, but it's all right. <laughs> that's life. If you were to ask me like 15 years ago or however long 2005 was, if someone were to be like, you know, you're going to become a librarian, I would have been like, what? But why, why library though? Why, why was that interesting to you? Because it's also interesting because two, two of the people that worked in the cage ended up becoming librarians. Yes. Yes. Sarah, Sarah Stone. <laughs> exactly. And who was the other one? It was you. <laughs> oh, 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 I thought you said someone else. Okay. Well, there could have been yeah. another one, but those are the two that I'm aware of. Oh, Sarah's just just for the record, also for like people don't know what the cage is. Cages that was the photo area at Wellesley. I used to work there. Don worked yeah. with me as a as a student. I had a, a crew of students who helped run the run things, and she was one of them. Oh, moving on. Yeah, yeah, and and Jim was a really rad boss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had a lot of conversations like this that were just kind of like, let's think about existential issues and you know whatever, life. And um, where where will we be? You know, I don't know. Um, but we know we, where we have been and where we are now and That's whatever true. and aspirations. But um, yeah. So I uh, lived br with Sarah Stone briefly at uh, the. Instead Feminist Vegetarian Cooperative. Oh, right, right, it's this right. house um, on the edge of campus. And so we briefly overlap. And she's a cool person. And I uh, touched base with her here and there um, afterwards, after she, we graduated. Mm -hmm. You know, I always love being in libraries and books and perusing the shelves and whatever. I briefly worked at uh, the conservations department at uh, Wellesley College Libraries. Libraries have always been a place of solace and refuge and sanctuary for me growing up, particularly like the public libraries in Queens. Shout out to Queens Public Library. <laughs> I grew up in Queens, New York. That's where I'm originally from. My dad used to take me there on weekends and stuff, and then we'd go to the McDonald's after for ha Happy Meals. So it's like books and Happy Meals, yay! What, what, how much better can this be? It sounds pretty good. 
It's pretty sweet. Yeah, I love chicken McNuggets and I love books. <laughs> I used to love chicken McNuggets. Now they kind of gross me out, but that's okay. Oh, yeah, that's all right. Kids love it. It's, it makes sense. They it's really fried, do. it's chewy. Yeah, so you good. dip it in the barbecue sauce. So- yeah. yeah, honey. I and, like honey and barbecue sauce, man. Yeah, I haven't had McDonald's in a while. But anyway, we. I digress. I digress. I don't know. I didn't really con- initially consider that as a career at first, even though I knew Sarah and she was very gung ho, like from the get go. Like, I she know. Was like, yeah, public libraries. Like, this is it. And she's still in public libraries and her role has shifted. I think she was a children's librarian for a bit and then she now works in um, collection development like she helps buy the books for San Francisco Public Libraries oh, which nice. is pretty rad. Yeah. That is pretty great. I, d- I did the thing in Japan teaching so I had the teaching experience under my belt. I did the tenement museum that was an educator role and I you know I enjoyed it. But I was trying to get established. But I had to like br- briefly live with my folks in in Queens, and that was not fun. And I, that was a huge motivating factor for me to like try to like get full time work to just be like an independent young adult. That's always a journey. And so I was like, all right, let me apply to all these different gigs. And um, one was to be cut for the New York City Teaching Fellows. It's kind of similar to AmeriCorps, okay, uh, where they recruit people who don't have credentials or even a degree in education, but you know are interested in working, doing public service in this way and to fill high need areas and special education is always a high need area and at the time teaching English as a second language was as well I don't know if it still is today and so I was like oh well I I taught English in Japan so I went to New York City public schools and I I always had that curiosity oh you know what would it be be like to be a, a classroom teacher and I thought at first like elementary that great K through five would kind of be my bag. And I did. I, so I got into that program. It was fine at first, you know, like the program, I went to Hunter College to do my master's. Great uh, City University of New York, Hunter College, great school, great professors, you know, enjoyed my courses and my peers in that program. I would estimate of the original cohort, maybe like 10 to 20 percent stuck it out and are still teaching, I want to say. Wow. Is that normal over teaching programs teaching, in general? Yeah. I think I read some year, somewhere many years ago, it's like five years. You give teachers five years and then that's that's kind of the turning point when people are like, no, this is not for me. I don't they're either in it or they're out. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and there's various reasons why. So the, the neat thing about that program at that time was they knew that if they wanted to retain candidates, that it was smart for them to let individual the individual candidates seek out their employment. So it used to be that they that we would be assigned to a specific district and school and that's that. And I think they found that a lot of people fled. Right. <laughs> so um so you know I did the whole interview. I sent my resume out and there was this elementary school in Jamaica, Queens. PS 131, shout out. Nice. Um, it was, it's a great school. A lot of uh, students, there's a huge um, Bengali Muslim uh, community there. So a lot of English language learners and very diverse. And like the teachers were great and the leadership was great. I think mostly I just, um, it wasn't for me. Like I was like, I don't think teaching young kids like day in and day out is something I want to deal with. He took my eraser. Uh, uh, you know, like I, you know, worked with the kindergartners for a little bit. It's not for everybody. That's just, it's that's not for just, everyone. That's just how it yeah. goes. I was like, all right, I still like teaching, you know. I mean, the, the fourth graders were cool, you know, that was fine. But it kind of like, this was still the no child left behind era. So the culture of public schools like shifted so drastically. I didn't even recognize it when I became a teacher in my early 20s. You know, I was like, I didn't remember school being so draconian, you know, like, you know, my public education was fine. I was, you know, in middle school, like with students who were motivated and my teachers were great. And then I went to a specialized high school to 
Townsend Harris High School, shout out, which is a school that it's like in New York City. I don't know if people know, but I think it really does have a huge impact on one's development, like where you go to high school, at least um, overall. And so New York City is great in that there's so many different specialized schools, like if like LaGuardia or the High School for Performing Arts. So lots of great, not just classes, but you the city itself as like your playground, as your, you know, you can go and intern at theaters, you can intern at museums, which is what I did in high school school I interned at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that sounds lovely. you know I got to yeah it was amazing I got to act you know I worked in their concerts and lectures department so I, I had a lot of experience shout out to New York City and I hope those programs are still going I've heard of New York City it's crazy it's like... I, yeah it's it's yeah it's cool you know it's, it was great growing up there as a young person not having to pay rent right like I lived with my folks so it became very independent uh, during those years and um, so that anyway the specialized high schools um, you know some of them you have to test in like those arts schools i didn't get in you know that's okay <laughs> and then uh stuyvesant high school and bronx science you know those are kind of more of the stem schools and very competitive and hold on super smart people hold on all we're going yeah. like crazy fast gonna slow it down you you uh you went to wellesley you're talking about all these schools that you applied to these uh specialized high schools and how competitive is is to get into there but getting into wellesley is also incredibly competitive yeah, yeah. So actually, my sister went to Wellesley. Um, and I didn't I wasn't initially like going to it wasn't like a, a top choice. Um, and she encouraged me to apply. And oh. so my parents weren't thrilled. They would have preferred that I just went to a state school. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I'm wondering. So like, you're looking into becoming a teacher, you are a librarian, uh, you have an advanced degree in, in, in library science. And you make comics. A lot of people that go to Wellesley are like, you know, like one of the biggest majors at Wellesley is economics is, is what I'm, I guess what I'm getting mm. at. So yeah. like you go to Wellesley and you major in art history and the Wellesley art history department is amazing, but mm -hmm. art history is not exactly, uh, it's not a moneymaker, we'll say. Right. <laughs> and, and then neither is education and neither is library science. So I'm just wondering, is there pressure from your, from your family, from your parents no, you know, <laughs> um, it's um, co complicated. Uh, it, like, I know I hear some horror stories with some, not just at Wellesley, but anywhere. Like, if if you don't do what your parents want, they're not going to cover your education. They're right. going to, like, make threats in there. They didn't do that. The education piece, like, they were pretty hands-off about it. And all my parents said was, okay, if you want to study art and art history, like, just we want you to be happy. Uh -huh. <laughs> Just know that you're on your own. Like after college, like you have to figure out like we're going to do. And, and I actually think that's fair. I think that is healthy in a way. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, I know I'm going to, I'm an adult and I, I have to be on my own. And with, with the exception of when I needed um, a couple of thousand dollars, like when I got into the jet program, you know, to like start a bank account there, like my mom was like, all right, you know, whatever, like you have to pay me back and don't do <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I did. And, I well, paid that's, her back. and, and I that's like, great. Yeah. And that's, know, that's, a fine, that's a fine expectation on her part, exactly, too. I don't exactly. think that's terrible. No, no, it's not. And so from there, I kind of learned, I think in my mind, I was like, all right, I have to be very savvy and creative about like opportunities. And um, I've been very lucky that even though I went into teaching not knowing like how long I would stick it out or whatever, I'm just glad I took the two opportunities, the opportunity to teach in Japan and the opportunity to teach in New York City schools. It just, all right, I tried it and it's not for me in the long run because right. of various factors. Like well, it's the, good. That's good for everybody because you, yeah. you wouldn't want to be stuck in it if, if you weren't into it. 
Right. There's nothing worse than a teacher that doesn't want to be there. Yeah, there's plenty of those. And I felt myself kind of becoming that, you know, I... um, (laughs) That's weird because you weren't even there that long. (laughs) It's true. But in my life in general, my whole MO is like flexibility, autonomy, all that stuff. I realized elementary teaching wasn't for me. I moved on to teaching at a high school also in Queens. It's a school that was dedicated just to English language learners, to mostly newcomer, immigrant, teen teen students, high school students, high school age students. And that school, I think, is still around. Um, They cater to uh, Spanish-speaking English language learners only at the time. It was kind of, it was a new experimental kind of setting. And I'm like, ooh, yay. And also, what was a draw for me, and hopefully this will finally be the seat of enlightenment here to get to your question, finally, um, <laughs> was that it was the position um, they gave me was, a, I applied for a one, I think it was like to teach English language arts. It was like a content specific position. But then uh, they were like, oh, actually, we like you. And there's this other position. I don't think it was the one they advertised, but they're like, there's a grant funded position to do basically specialized help, like small group help with students who are identified as students with interrupted formal education. So here begins the acronyms. So in education and library world, lots of acronyms. So SIF, students with interrupted formal education. What does that mean? It means that if students are traditional high school age, like 13 to 17, 18, whatever, Mm -hmm. let's say they come, they arrive from wherever, Mexico, Colombia, or you know, Dominican Republic, they, um, because of their age, they have to enroll in a high school, but it doesn't mean they actually have the requisite education from before. So some of them may have never had any schooling. They maybe had up to second grade, if even that much. Um, So they, their literacy levels are not at, you know, the grade level, you know, at high school. Right, grade right, level. Right, so they're, right. they're just, they need a lot to catch up on. So it was the, it was a coordinator position. And, and how, how old position. are those kids? They're, um, you know, 14 to 18, 19. Some of them are older. And how, how long does it take them to catch up usually? Uh, a while. So New York City public schools, they used to, uh, up until like the early 2000s, like allow for newcomer immigrant students no matter how old they are, they give them, they exempt them from testing for five years. They're like, we'll give these students five years. So yeah, they can acquire the English language, have enough of a proficiency to take classes only in English, in the English language. Um, There are bilingual, I'm not going to get into it, but there are bilingual schools and blah, blah, and different programs to help these students. But this school is distinctly set up to help newcomer um, immigrant students who are learning English. And how how does it, does it usually work out? What's the success rate? When I say success, I mean, completion of the course and and moving on to something else. Great question, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this school is set up specifically for Spanish-speaking students because statistically, um, Spanish-speaking immigrant students or Latinx students um, have had low graduation rates. So like that's why they were like, oh, let's create a school that's catered to them. Okay. But there were challenges because if you have a school with 
students who can all speak the same language, like the the kind of the motivation for them to speak in another language, i.e. English. Oh, it's gone. There's there's yeah, there's less kind of a peer uh, motivation, right? Yeah, Whereas yeah. if they were at a heterogeneous school, linguistically speaking and culturally speaking, English would be quote unquote the lingua franca, you know? Yep. Haha. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> so, yeah. And so it was a struggle. And so I don't I think I was only at that school for three years. So I I did last long enough to see the first graduating class of students. And it was a very small school to begin with. Um, And a number of them, I think, are doing really, really well. I think they're in their mid to late 20s at this point. And then others, I don't know, like they either transfer to other schools that like alternative high schools that would allow for older students or they maybe dropped out and work. I mean, it was just so challenging in a lot of ways. A lot of these... It sounds like you might not have lost the interest in teaching if they didn't throw no. you into this. Or I'm gonna, I was about to say crazy place. And I, no. when I say crazy place, not <laughs> yeah. because the idea is crazy, but I yeah. feel like it's the sort of thing where you are new at doing this. You don't have any real teaching experience mm-hmm. right. or no practical yeah. teaching experience yeah. you're you're thrown into this situation with a bunch of people with varying degrees of willingness to to do what the school is intended to do it's not like these people are paying because they really want to get in the program they're like someone told them you should do this and then they were yeah. just there so you've yeah. got a, a student body who may or may not be willing to do it and who came up with this program? Someone just said, we should do it this way. Is is it really well thought out? Is is there mm. is there precedent mm. for, for this type mm. of program working? Mm. Is mm. this is this the best way to do it? So mm-hmm. I feel like it's the it's the kind of thing that maybe someone with a little bit more experience should be doing. <laughs> Wow, where do you even begin? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but whatever, we don't. Yeah. Have, I mean, we don't have to go deep into that because it was a very small chapter in your life. But th- those—that's what pops into my head immediately when you're telling me this. I I would agree. Yeah, I mean, there was just so m- much going on at that time systemically. Again, the testing was such a huge issue, such a barrier. Like, because they yeah. took away the five-year exemption, so there was that systemic issue. So even for really seasoned teachers, it was just like a system set up for failure, basically. That's what it sounds right? like. Yeah, I agree. Like having very seasoned teachers who know what they're doing and how. To... And the students were always they were great. You know, they were they were very motivated for the most part, very wanting to learn and 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 appreciative and I felt for them and they stuck it through despite the system that was set up to fail everyone you know um and and it's the saddest for them you know like I think so too they don't deserve that yeah they don't deserve that you know it's hard not to feel disheartened and then schools get scrutinized because at the time and I hope they've changed this I really do like they used to tie how students did with the passing the test so in New York City or New York State there's a regent's exam that used to not be a requirement to graduate they used to just be a certain subset of students if you want this certain kind of diploma then you have to pass these regent state exams and whatever right for everyone else whatever you just take your core classes and whatever right and there used to be vocational programs they started defunding that and that was tragic because a lot of our students were hoping hey i want to go into haircutting you know anyway that's it that's crazy so it was just it was it was that and then the pressures from our administration they they i felt very supported but i also felt for my supervisors who you know if we weren't meeting these numbers it became a numbers game and it just was very dehumanizing on on every level and i did what i could i was in this grant funded position so had a lot of autonomy to be creative as i said so i that's how i still kept the comics thing going which were you doing comics this whole time 
I was in Japan. That was like a you know because Japan is such a vi- visual manga or in yeah Japan, yeah, yeah. oh that, that's cool yeah. So nice. then I was like, why don't I integrate comics into my teaching, which I started in Japan. I would draw comics to kind of share my kind of story and introduce myself. And they're like, haha, that's Dawn. Like I would draw myself, I have my students draw themselves. And mm-hmm. it was just a fun way to learn language. So I, I kept that, you know, I uh, would have, I would do that with the students I was working with in New York. And I had a budget to do collection development. So ding, ding, ding. So, okay. So I'm in this school that's in this uh, building that's shared with four other schools. There was a library, right, with books. Somehow there was, I don't know who funded it, but but there's no librarian. So yeah, school librarian shortage, that's been a constant thing. And so, uh, but I remember colleagues bringing their students to use that library for like, you know, here's like free reading period or whatever. But because I had my own budget, I created a little classroom library. So without me knowing, realizing like I was doing like librarian work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I would buy comics because my students coming from Latin America, you know, manga is universal. So they were familiar with Dragon Ball Z and I bought like sets of that in English. And so they were motivated to read and they're like, oh yeah, we're they're already familiar with the story and the characters, right? Now they're just reading it in English. And so then I was like, okay, well you can, uh, let's write in English and you can write in comics form. You know, I'm not going to have these newcomers students who have hardly been uh, in a classroom just write me a five-page essay like that's daunting and also quite frankly boring sometimes you know well it's certainly nice to integrate fun into the process right yeah yeah so there is um you know the these texts um that are high level content like mouse you know and i did actually teach with mouse um yeah and you know to teach english through the global uh, history lens, specifically the Holocaust, and a lot of students didn't know about it. And so that was very rich. You know, we had a lot of great conversations dissecting, like, why were the Jews, why do you think the author chose to depict the Jews as mice and the Nazis as cats, et cetera? And, you know, they got it. So there's a lot of rich discussion. And then I had them create their own comics. So I would have a comics collective. It was just fun for everyone. And I was like, yeah, tell your, share your stories. Like, you know, share kind of like, what do you, what do you like to do with your friends? And, you know, just things that were very accessible. And I gave them comic worksheet templates. So a lot of literacy work, right? A lot of just kind of interdisciplinary, um, integrated kind of like they're getting inspiration from graphic novels. So, I mean, I really enjoyed the time I had there. I even uh, applied and got a grant to work with the teaching artist, um, but, but you're I like, kinda, no, this isn't for me. <laughs> yeah. I kind of wanted to leave on a high note. Yeah, I was no, like, you know, I want to like try. Made. Yeah. I kind of was like, let me, let me do what I can to make hopefully this experience of learning in myself included, you know, along with my students as genuinely enjoyable as possible, because to me learning and learning through the arts, it's all about risk-taking and being open and um, finding, yeah, finding joy. Like learning isn't drudgery, you know, and Mm -hmm. I couldn't really, the testing stuff was very, very hard. I I felt for my students and I was like, I don't want to be a part of the system (laughs) where everyone's just like high, strong. And because of the stakes, if we quote unquote underperform, budgets taken away and all these people just come in and they quote unquote try to do intervention and it's just (laughs) wreaking havoc. Just let teachers do their thing. We know what we're doing and we work with these students daily. And so at that point I was kind of like, I still like teaching. 
And I wasn't quite sure what where to go, but then I remembered Sarah, and I reached out to her, and I said, uh, hey, you know, this is where I'm at in my life and career, and I'm thinking of going into librarianship. I'm not sure what that even really means. She was just really encouraging. I also, at that point, wanted to get out of New York City. That was sort of grinding me down, too, you know? I think living there can do that to people. <laughs> I, I get ground down after just visiting there. So, yeah. And I grew up there and I kind of something about it was like I just again, like it was that energy that I had coming back from New Zealand. Like I want to go out and, and live elsewhere and just experience a different place. And my mind was like all over the place. Mm -hmm. But um, but I also needed to support myself. And if I wanted to go into librarianship, I would have to get another master's. Right. Like at that time, that was becoming like the base line of you have to have a master's in library science to be employed. It has become a fairly popular degree to, to mm -hmm. get, right? Yeah, it attracts a lot of folks like me, career changers, people who either were teachers or they worked in book publishing. A lot of lawyers, interestingly. I've worked huh. with colleagues who have JDs. And while librarianship is interesting, usually a lot of the times it's like you it is required for law librarians to also have a JD. With what, is, what does JD stand for? Oh, it's just that degree that lawyers get. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, it's like the general <laughs> law Jurist thing. Doing the, what is it? A Juris doctor degree. Oh, Juris doctor. I don't know. I don't want to go to law school. It's... But some people just <laughs> love the law. They do. They do. And, and, you know, lawyers, they can be helpful. They can be. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. they need to be helpful sometimes. Yes. <laughs> but um, because I went to Wellesley, which is a small liberal arts school, and I appreciated the education I got, but I, I wanted that big university experience. So sure. I applied to University of Wisconsin-Madison. And that's where I ultimately went. And the reason I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison was they offered me um, an assistantship. You know, they were like, here, we have this grant funded a position to help with like doing like diversity, equity, inclusion um, programming, you know, for nice. our grad students. Great college town, great experience. I still talk to folks that I worked with and went to school there with um, a lot of them did st stick around like the Wisconsin, Minnesota area because yep. that's where they're from. And sure. And it, long story short, while I was there, that was when I just went to town and I just took whatever position, different kinds of library and information um, professional related positions I could. I had a position digitizing old glass plate. Like I did a lot of photo digitization work, which was great. There's so much richness and potential with archives, especially when it comes to like learning about underrepresented histories. Like I learned about um, the the farm workers movement in um, Wisconsin. There were a lot of migrant workers who picked the grapes and that how that was tied to Cesar. I had no idea, but I was like scanning these photographs, you know, that this photojournalist um, donated to our collections. And I was just like, wow, this should be seen by more people. And Before you said something about while you were working on this archival stuff, you learned a lot about people and cultures that were mm -hmm. underrepresented. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that tie in with your current comic? It does. Thank you. For t I know. I was kind of like, oh, how do I tie this? There you go. Um, it's tied yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> it's tied in. Yeah. It, it's funny because a lot of stuff in terms of just like why I do what I do 
it's not really conscious, if that makes sense. No, of back, course. That, that's back, how it goes, right? There's it's, themes that come up over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wellesley, I, I wasn't focused on doing comics. It wasn't like, I'm going to get do studio arts because I'm really into comics. I So my focus was in photography, and I took, those were the bulk of the courses that I completed for my studio arts degree. I just wanted to mention this. I wasn't sure how to work this in, but before you worked in the cage, I remember you took Salem's class, the video class. Yeah. And it was it was basically you imploring your fellow students to shave their heads. <laughs> you do remember that. Good memory. Um, yeah, no, that was an interesting uh, concept video. Haha. <laughs> I don't know where that went, that tape, but um I wish I wish this... I could watch it again, but I <laughs> Oh there was uh, her name was Alyssa Tsukushi and she was on the rugby team and I, I briefly tried out to do rugby and that's whatever insane. So she shaved her head and I was like, that's cool. <laughs> that was when I was taking that video course and I was just like, hey, I want to know what it's like to have my head shaven. So can you just shave my head while like I'm recording this or something? Yeah. But actually, you know, before that happened, I I think it stemmed from having a really I had a really bad haircut. Oh, <laughs> like okay. I was at home for <laughs> spring fresh. break. Yeah, I was at home on spring break uh, my first year and I went to this barber school, you know, because it was like a five dollar haircut. And I kept telling the dude his English language skills wasn't that strong. And he was using a buzzer. And I usually have like a very simple, like mm-hmm. short haircut. And then he kept going and he's like, oh, no, he's just it's like so I essentially had like a semi buzzed cut. Yeah. So it looked bad. And I think that was part of the reason, too. I was like, hey, Alyssa, just take care of this. <laughs> like, you should just shave it all off. Some people were like, are you a monk? Did you want to become like a Buddhist? Monk? You know, because that's what they do, you know. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting association. And so, yeah, that was the one and only time I ever I did that. And I did it for art, partially. Yeah, you did. I did it for art. But yeah. again, before I mentioned that it seems like there are these themes that come up, in, including talking about the misrepresented uh, or underrepresented communities. And yeah. then we were going to talk about your comic book. Yeah. So so anyway, so here we are, 2022. I'm merging all the things, all my interests and skills and experiences that I've had. Long story short, ended up um, working my first official library gig at Suffolk County Community College. Oh, nice. It was hard living out there as a person of color. It's MAGA country. Oh, <laughs> Very exciting. conservative. Very, yeah, not, no. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> Exciting in a scary way. Keeps you on your toes. <laughs> it it sure does. So I mean, I I am glad I I learned a lot, you know, of having to adapt. But after a number of years, I was like, I'm tired of this. The great thing was the benefits and professional support, and that's what got me started with this project. So anyway, while I was there, I went to the New York Public Library, Chinatown branch, on one of my holidays. I took a trip because I saw in Time Out New York, they were advertising a Chinese American history exhibit. I was like, that's cool. I've never seen anything like that before. And then I come upon the story of Ty Laring Schultz, and she's the first Chinese American woman who voted in an election. And there was a very striking picture, a portrait of her when she was very young. I was like, wow, I didn't know that. We don't, I didn't learn this in school. And who is this person? Kind of like, how did, how did that happen? Yeah. So it was just like this honest curiosity that led me back into the archive. So I was able to apply for grant funding from that job, my library job at the community college to do field research in California. But I ended up being able to contact the descendants of this person. 
So Tyler and Schultz's grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many she has in total, um, but the main person, I guess the unofficial family representative is her grandson, Ted. His name is Ted Schultz. When I reached out to him, he actually did some research on me, which is smart. You shouldn't just, you should do that with any stranger who reaches out, you know? Right, right. It's like, why should he believe that I'm a librarian? Like anyone can say that, right? So he found my webcomic. So all along, I was still... I still had an artistic practice, you know, kind of here and there on my summers off when I was still teaching. And I went to zine festivals and got more exposure and motivation and momentum and Mm -hmm. sharing my creating and sharing my work in that way. So I would do uh, zines. And when I was teaching, my students made zines and yay. And then I discovered Blogspot and Tumblr. Remember that? Yeah, Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yeah. Those and then I took a comics course. How, how can I forget? I took a comics course with the legendary Linda Berry. How did I not mention this? Yeah. Com- where did you take a comics course? Where, where- at, at Madison. Oh. Talk about fate. You know, I did not know. I, I had heard of Linda Berry. I had come across her work. She's biracial, Filipino and white. She did alternative weekly comics for the Chicago Reader before they folded. And she published, she has published a lot of books and stuff with these characters that are based on her life, you know, growing up in Seattle, bicultural and stuff like that. So I saw her talk at Madison and she's like, I'm, I'm offering this course. It's open to grad at all students. So long story short, I got in and, you know, that changed my life. <laughs> like it's all these things like I, I go f- to get the library degree and, you know, meet other people also who changed my life and had these experiences that gave me more knowledge and understanding. It kind of like exposed me more to different opportunities, right? So that kind of lessened my anxiety a little bit, you know, just being like, okay, there are other possibilities because when I left teaching, people thought I was crazy and mostly people in my family. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you just went to school for it and then, you know. Yeah. Also, also teaching a lot, you know, it's practical. It is. Places always need teachers, uh, especially in New York City. Benefits are great. Um, And, and I didn't mention this. Summer's off. And I didn't mention this. I had tenure. (laughs) Oh, snap. (laughs) Yeah, I had tenure, which is, has been like right after I got mine, like was increasingly hard for probationary teachers to get. I didn't feel like I had to go under this rigorous scrutinous like experience. Like it wasn't painful for me. You know, it's classroom observations, teaching observations, and I did fine, but it depends on the leadership and whatever. So I lucked out. I knew that. And they're like, oh my God, like you have a great retirement pension, like system, you have tenure. Look what you just gave up. Yeah, exactly. And I want to say, if anything in this podcast, I know I really rambled a lot, but don't be afraid to leave, even if it's good, you know, in some in that aspect, because I think sometimes it's I've heard someone call it like the golden handcuffs, you know, and I was still so young. I was like in my mid 20s, mid to late 20s. I was like, I was like, can I see myself in the next 40 years? I'm like, no, it's easy to walk away when you're 25 Mm -hmm. or 27 Mm -hmm. or 28 even. But, you know, some people like say you're my age, 40, 46. It would be hard for someone my age to walk away. And you have kids. Yeah, and and kids and a house (laughs) and all that stuff. And you're like, will I be able to get another job? Even if I go and retrain myself and get another degree and blah, 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 blah. 
it's a much bigger risk at different the, depending on the time of your life and also the, what your financial situation is. Anyway, you have a point. I'm just saying there, there are reasons why people don't do it. No, well, yeah. To be fair, so at the time I was I was sing I am still single. I was I didn't have kids. You know, I was renting. Like I could just go get up and move. And yeah. So then, and I didn't know. I was like, all right, I'm giving this up. And um, and I did take a leave of absence just to be safe, just if I wanted to come back. Oh yeah, there you I, go filed that official paperwork and went off to Madison. But then there's this opportunity to work with this amazing person. Not only is she Linda Berry and a phenomenal, talented artist, she's a really great human being. Like, I think that changed my life just being around her aura. Like, oh, nice. she's just is a very giving, she's very present with every person she engages with, even if you just spoke to her after a talk for like five minutes. Like, she's going to give you those five minutes and she's going to really listen and she's going to really just genuinely be like team you she's all about like you do you you do you know Mm -hmm. and so I had that I got to be around her for two years and mentored by her and she really encouraged me to kind of expand and be more courageous in my visual storytelling of sharing you know kind of childhood stories and experiences I've had and She's like, yeah, you know, like totally keep telling these stories. And I upped my zine game or my (laughs) self-publishing game. So instead of using whatever school copier, you know, I would, okay, let me, I want to do color comics and I want to actually make this like a booklet and, you know, whatever, go to festivals and stuff. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that I took that chance in my life because I would not have in a million years have predicted it would have led me to work with her, to meet with her and to have her like, you know, really be encouraged. She said, you know, you're an artist on, you're an artist. And as I was, you know, in my last semester of grad school, it was just nice for two years being like a full time student. I had time like I had time dedicated to my studies, to working different jobs and exploring and learning about myself and starting this new chapter. You know, I I had to kind of gradually awaken back to reality <laughs> of just like okay this fantasy vacation is over and I need to like go and like figure out like what next yeah. but the nice thing here is that uh, you're you just made this book or over the past couple of years you've made you made this this book mm-hmm. and you have a, a normal job yes so, so that to me tells me that you've achieved some kind of balance you're able to do both. Yes. And it and it doesn't destroy your life. You you sound like no. you're relatively I mean, I'm not going to make the assumption that you're happy, but you, 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 you seem okay. You seem, you don't sound distressed. You don't sound depressed. You sound, you sound like you got it to going on. You got it together. That to me means that you've, you've succeeded at something. Do you feel successful? Yeah. I mean, who success? I feel fulfilled. There you go. Yeah. I think fulfillment to me, I think, I don't think too much about success in terms of status or title, you know, like some, some of my colleagues do and that's fine. Or, I mean, that's just the world we are in, right? Like that's what we're sold. Yeah. Well, yeah. To value. And that was something I had to grapple with on an existential level uh, to go back to that. But, and I know I'm going to sound very woo and spiritual, but this project, I felt it found me, you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. cause and I was open to it. Like, I think just being open and curious, the, what, it, what I felt like I, I'm meant to do or what I'm doing is what I'm meant to do because it's like a calling, you know, and it's like, I just love to teach. I don't know. Like, it's just something in me because I like to help people. I also like to learn. I think like being a lifelong learner is essential 
even imperative, like in terms of being an effective teacher, you know, like I do that through art and teaching and I merge them together. And so that the book going back, you know, so I talked to Ted, the grandson, he did research on me. He found my comics because I put them out there on the interwebs, not like I'm like, okay, I think five people look at that. You know, I don't really care about the likes (laughs) or anything. But what mattered was he saw it Uh and he was the one to be like, I like your comics about your own storytelling of your own family history. I think you I can see you doing that for to do that for my family and to tell my grandmother's story. I take that to be like an honor. So yeah, Tian Lang Schultz, uh Translator for Justice is that first book. And then I just published Tian Fu Wu Freedom Warrior. And they were contemporaries. They both helped um, victims of sex trafficking at the turn of the last century, the 20th century, yeah. during the Chinese Exclusion Act era, um, during a time when it was very dangerous for them to just even exist in public spaces, given they were women of Chinese descent, which is unfortunately a very parallel experience during the COVID era, you know. Um, Especially thing, in the beginning, you know. right? Well, it's still going on. Is it really? You know? Yeah, yeah. Because well, I remember it was kind of, a, it was a thing here and then, and then it, just kind of like you stopped hearing about it. Well, it doesn't mean that it's still not happening. No, that's true. That's yeah, true. unfortunately, uh, I was talking to uh, someone I used to work with in uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society. She's of Chinese descent, um, my friend, and she grew up in Minnesota. And she's still predominantly pretty white. Like it's a little bit more diverse nowadays because of the refugee communities from Laos and Vietnam and right, right, Somalia right, right. and whatever. But but it's still, you know, it's still the Midwest, right? <laughs> very, very white. You betcha. Yeah, you betcha. So last week she was just saying, yeah, there was a, a like a hate crime, like an Asian student got attacked Jeez. on campus. So I didn't hear about that only through her. And she's just, you know, on edge. So that's why I self-published when I did. You know, I could have done it sooner or kind of held off later, you know, to find a publisher or something. But I was like, you know what? I know how to do this on my own. Just going to do it. I have the means. Yeah, I have the funding from my work. And I just want it out there. I want it on library shelves. I want to present the, present this at fef- festivals like I just did in Toronto, the Toronto Comics Arts Festivals. You know, just engage directly with the public. Who, um, who's reading it? I'm curious who, who your audience is. At the Toronto Comics Festival, uh, a lot of Canadians of Asian descent <laughs> found my work across yeah. the ages. Uh-huh. You know, so they were very excited to to learn about it because um, it's pretty similar in Canada in terms of the history of xenophobia and. But anti- what what are the age ranges usually? It's diverse. Well. Maybe college aged and upwards okay. to yeah, middle right. aged. Yeah. Like people who kind of know, get the deal with what graphic novels are. The yeah. reason I'm wondering is because I feel like this is the kind of thing where everyone's like, oh, you know, kids should read this yes. because I, yeah. they don't understand how good yeah. they have it or how privileged they are. Yeah. But then I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. do kids respond to that? They're just like, whatever. They're always just telling me how horrible it was. Well, I met a young person. I mean, I can see it in high schools high school i mean so i've sent books copies to school libraries like i kind of did this thing where hey i have some copies i was able to buy through my school funds my professional development funds so these are copies i can just send to your school library Um, so hopefully high school social studies teachers or whoever and i've done talks at my college and other colleges and i sent a copy to the new york public library chinatown branch Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah the librarian there sent me a message not too long ago he said you know sorry for the delayed response i when i received your book recently a high school student came in looking for a book about tyler and schultz i guess what? in his social so yeah 
he's like in there in their social studies class whatever because she's more and more out there now like okay. she was featured on PBS she oh, was and right. the um, centennial of the 19th amendment was a big thing so I think maybe that's why she's kind of more out there now thankfully and he was and the librarian was like and I remembered your book was on my desk so I gave them that book you know and I was like this is why I do what I do yeah you know so I'm excited this is just the beginning thankfully things are opening up and I can go in person to these comics festivals um, I'm gonna do a plug I'll be at the <laughs> auto optic festival in Minneapolis August 13th and 14th and then small press expo with which is a big indie comics festival in Bethesda Maryland in September 18th and 19th and um, hopefully more more places internationally you know sure um, you should also say that the what is it the water yes water. i was gonna say you can find me online <laughs> so it's www.waterpigpress.com i use the water pig because i'm born in the year of the water pig that's my chinese zodiac animal nice. like i wanted to put that uh instead of just my name when i was self-publishing stuff I looked through the, the the pages that are online. It's not the whole thing, I don't believe, I, or no. it doesn't seem to have a resolution. So I'm assuming I'm assuming that the the actual book has a re, has a resolution. When I say resolution, I'm not talking about the images. I'm talking about the story. the The text is very linear and matter of fact. I get a kick out of the the drawings and like the the speech bubbles. So there, the bulk of the story is told in a block of text. I'm, t I'm not saying this for you. I'm saying this for people who haven't looked at it. <laughs> and then there are illustrations underneath with little text bubbles. But I really, I enjoy the things you choose to put in the text bubbles. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, um, the format of why I have it landscape and kind of like text and then image, you know, side by side juxtaposed on the page yeah. um that's inspired by illuminated manuscripts and i grew up catholic so stained glass the colors the vision like the very expressive you know characters and and whatnot and so i wanted to also have that um integrated into my work and also if you had the paperback copy it's uh this landscape format that is similar to one of a couple of books that Linda Berry published because I've oh. had people ask me, they're like, this looks very similar. And she does a lot of collage and calligraphy type stuff um, in terms of the text. And um, I'm like, yeah, I'm just like paying homage to all my influences and inspiration. Sure. Why not? Um, yeah. And also these figures kind of, you know, venerating them, you know, as mm -hmm. one would, would a saint in a way. <laughs> So I kind of wanted to give them that treatment, you know, with the ornate or ornamentation with the framing, you know, or on the panels and and the photographs. I, I wanted to integrate historic photographs because I obviously had to re do a lot of photographic research to look at the time period of the, you know, the plate, like the Chinatown in San Francisco what did it look like in the 1880s, you know, and what I illustrate is really more of the imagined scenes and dialogue that took place, you know, to kind of move the story along and to kind of bring to life, imagining how these women lived, you know, day to day, um, kind of what they must have felt emotionally, their resilience, you know, kind of depicting moments where they had to problem solve and, you know, face adversity um, yeah. in very real, tangible ways. That is, again, um, something that we are still facing today. You know, it's just a reminder, this isn't new. There are figures then and now who um, resist and who still kind of 
find this source of of courage and also this this will to live. And that kind of actually on a personal level, like working on these stories in the way that I did brought me a lot of joy, a lot of solace, knowing that there is this kind of greater support, this kind of purpose, I guess. We're all interconnected as are these stories and the lives of these women. And there's something hopefully that people of all different backgrounds, um, identities can can connect with. (laughs) Just in the stuff that I've looked at, I definitely... I, I, it's yeah. not that I relate to it, obviously. I mean, I'm a, I'm a middle-class white guy. It's hard to relate to this person from 100 years ago. But I'm looking right now at the picture of, what's his name, Schultz and uh, the main character. And her mm-hmm. parents are on one side. And then this dour-looking mm-hmm. German lady's on the other side. There's something that I feel like everyone can m- maybe not relate to, but they understand. And they, they know these stories. They know how these stories mm-hmm. go. But the details are the parts that maybe they don't know. Mm-hmm. For instance, the sex slavery. And yeah. well, also the importance of being a translator in communities like this. Even today, yes. I, I can mm-hmm. remember there was a, someone who worked at Wellesley who was a Wellesley student previously. And she mm-hmm. was Vietnamese and she and her brother lived in a Vietnamese community in, in or around Boston. And they were kind of like ambassadors for the Vietnamese community with like the legal system and all that. It's a big burden for some people to have that skill, to, to be able to bridge the gap between a cultural enclave or is it enclave or enclave and the powers that be. It's kind of crazy that it's still something that is a necessity. It is. You know, thank you for mentioning that because I also, the translation part, like how I wanted to depict that and the important, how underrated it is in terms of just like the level of skill. Yeah. (laughs) And also, yeah, how a lot of people uh, who rely on translation services, like how much their livelihoods and their survival is reliant on people who, like Tyler and Schultz and Tian Fu, who are able to not only um, convey la- the information linguistically, you know, um, both in English and, and Chinese, but also like con- cultural context and kind of presenting it in a way, right? Because there's just so much sometimes it's hard to translate, you know, and like literally, yeah, um, because there's like a lot of cultural context or just, and you have to just understand who are you talking to and, mm-hmm. you know, and there's just so much going on at the same time and, and imagine you're like in you know doing a rescue mission i can't imagine right like, no. <laughs> like, like but like you know you're you're in a very dangerous place and it's like you're in a brothel and it's run by like criminals like organized criminals who have like weapons and they're gonna like fu- one often gonna... finds themselves right like what yeah and yeah so they were they were like in really just high stakes like dangerous situations and you gotta really just make sure you you are able to communicate and be quick on your feet. That's why I also was like, well, I hadn't seen any comics. Uh, I haven't come across any anyway recently where there's that depiction of that process going on. All right. So I wanted to also for myself to reconnect to my heritage language. Like Mm -hmm. I grew up speaking Cantonese. I'm okay. I'm not proficient by any means. I'm not fluent, but, um, you know, like colloquial words, I realized, oh, I, even though I went to Chinese school as a kid, we didn't learn how to read and write like colloquially. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. very formal and dry. So I thank goodness for the internet. Thank goodness for um, glossaries and bilingual dictionaries. So I figured out, I was like, I wanted to depict them speaking uh, Cantonese, like translating 
back and forth in, in Cantonese and English in the actual dialogue boxes because I want people to actually see that. This is something that is uh, going on in so many communities every day and we should, you know, appreciate <laughs> the that kind of work that happens. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate you doing this. And uh, is there something that you need to say before before we stop? No, just... Um, yeah, live your life and listen to what your heart is saying. I know that sounds very cliche or it does, whatever, but... But um... that doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we need to say it more often to each other and to ourselves, just especially when we feel grinded down by life. But life doesn't always have to be droning and draining and grinding. It could be uplifting and full of light and hope. Um, and I think that that comes with engaging you know with one another and so that's kind of what how i'm here i don't think i would be in the place i am in my life not just in my career but just on a personal development level if i hadn't kind of taken that risk and yeah really just listen to myself and and give myself that chance to take the risk like give myself permission to explore other opportunities and know that I'll be okay no matter what chances we take even if it ends in failure kind of in ways that we didn't that it wasn't what we hoped it would be it's not the end of the world right on I wish I was as optimistic as you (laughs) thank you very much yep take care Jim and goodbye bye that was Dawn the start of that one was a bit like a runaway freight train but I feel like we eased into a nice groove in the second half Dawn is another example of how people can change directions over the course of a career, but an even better example of maintaining a balance between financial security and artistic practice. My biggest take from this one is being aware of and utilizing the resources at your disposal. Not everyone has a network or money or parents who can help you, but many of the people who have these things don't use them or don't know how. I love to hear about people reaching out to their network, finding and taking advantage of programs at their school, or even just asking their parents for a loan to get something done. One of the regrets of my life thus far has been not taking full advantage of time and resources when I could, and there have been many. I envy folks who see these things in the moment and seize the day. Yeah, hindsight is 2020, but some people do it, or they seem to be able to do it. I think that noticing the stepping stones and taking advantage of the opportunities around you is a skill that many of us should work on. Is it a skill? Is it a personality characteristic? I'm not sure. Thanks for being on the show, Don. It was great catching up, and I hope your books make it into all the libraries. All of them. Every. Single. One. As mentioned in the episode, Don will be at Auto Optic on August 13th and 14th, and at Small Press Expo in Bethesda, Maryland on September 17th and 18th. Those dates are in 2022 in case future people are listening. You can find her most recent releases, Teen Fu Wu, Freedom Warrior, and Tai Lung Schultz, Translators for Justice, at waterpigpress.com or at her Etsy shop, etsy.com slash shop slash waterpigpress. If you love hanging out on the internet, why not visit Feel Free to Deviate on Instagram at Feel Free to Deviate. Like, comment on, and otherwise interact with all the fun stuff I'm posting there. You'll love it. Well, I like it, and a handful of other people seem to like it too. Or maybe they just like me. I'm not sure, but you can go there and do that. 
You can also go to feelfreetodeviate.com if you like websites. I think it's a pretty good one, but I suppose that depends on what you're looking for. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you got something out of it. The next episode features Viva Butler. She's a teacher, a vagabond, a caretaker, and a homeschooler. There's a lot going on there. Check it out in two weeks. And until then, keep up the good work. And if you're doing bad work, please stop. <laughs>